Hey, you guys, I want to let you know about Book of the Month, an exciting service that helps readers discover great new books while also promoting the work of emerging authors. Every month, the editorial team at Book of the Month reads through hundreds of new titles. They do the curating for you. They narrow it down to five to seven of the best new books on the market, and you get to choose your Book of the Month. To sign up, just visit bookofthemonth.com. And for a limited time, you can get your first book for just $9.99 by using the offer code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. I should add that Book of the Month recently launched curated audiobooks in addition to hardcovers, so members have options. You can choose one or the other, either the hardcover edition or the audiobook. And if you pick the audiobook, you can download it and listen to it right there in the Book of the Month app. My latest pick is a novel called Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. It tells the story of a forgotten art star of the 1980s who died tragically and whose life and work and memory are later unearthed by an art history student. This is right up my alley. I can't wait to read it. So if you want to sign up for Book of the Month, remember, go to bookofthemonth.com and for a limited time, Get your first book for just $9.99 by using the code CHIRP, C-H-I-R-P. One more time, that's bookofthemonth.com. Use the code CHIRP and get reading. All right. Okay. How you doing, everybody? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. This is the 700th episode of this show. 700 episodes over a decade. The show's going to be 10 years old in September. Have I mentioned that this year? This is the 10th year of this podcast. It's hard to believe. It's hard to believe that there are 700 episodes out there, but here we are. And I have as my guest today, Gina Frangello. She's an old pal of mine. I've known her for more than a decade now. And she has a new memoir out from Counterpoint. It is called Blow Your House Down. And it is an incredibly powerful book. A searing work of self-examination. It's about a marriage coming apart. It's about an affair. It's about motherhood. It's about daughterhood. It's about sisterhood. It's about illness. It's about truth. It's about lies. It's about survival. It's about a lot of different things. And the reason it's about a lot of different things is because Gina Frangello went through an incredible amount of shit in a very concentrated period of time. That's what this book covers. And I cannot imagine that I will read this year a book more powerful than Blow Your House Down. I sort of hope I don't. <laughs> I mean, it's a, it's an amazing book. It's an amazing piece of writing. It could not have been an easy book to write. But, you know, if there were any punches pulled in this book, I missed it. I didn't, you know, search me. I have no idea where they would be. So my conversation with Gina Frangello is coming up momentarily. Again, her memoir is called Blow Your House Down. A quick reminder that this program, 
now has its own YouTube channel. The Other People podcast is available on YouTube, the entire catalog, right there on YouTube for your convenience. It's all free. Please subscribe. If you go to YouTube and you search for the show, search for it by its uh, particular spelling, Other PPL. Also, uh, this program, all 700 episodes, are available for free. The entire catalog of this show is made available to you, the listener, for free. It's a listener-supported show. If you enjoy the program, if you listen regularly, if you get something from it, support the show. Tip your server. You can do so for as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com slash otherpplpod, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. There are different tiers. There's like different like award systems. You can get a tote bag, a sticker, a coffee mug, a t-shirt, a book club subscription. I'll wish you a happy birthday. I'll write you a postcard, all that kind of stuff over at patreon.com slash other PPL pod. Today's episode is brought to you by Avid Reader Press, publisher of the novel Infinite Country by Patricia Engel. I just finished this book a couple of days ago, and it's a wonderful novel. It is a heart-rending novel about a mixed-status family split between Colombia and the United States. It is a beautiful and devastating depiction of what it's like to live undocumented in the United States of America. And I, you know, I can't recommend it highly enough. Reese Witherspoon picked it for her book club. It is an instant New York Times bestseller, and you should read it. You really should. It's a quick read, too. You'll, you'll probably do it in one sitting, maybe two. Infinite Country by Patricia Engel, available now in bookstores and online from Avid Reader Press. So, uh, you know, I re-aired my interview with Gian, uh, Giancarlo de Trapano over the weekend. For those of you who are not aware yet, uh, Giancarlo de Trapano, the founder and publisher of Tyrant Books and a past guest on this program, died unexpectedly last week. And uh, his death created an enormous outpouring of grief and affection on social media. I don't know if you saw it. I don't know how you could have missed it if you're a literary person online, but he was uh, a friend of mine. I did not know him very well, but um, I considered him a pal and certainly um, a co-conspirator in the literary community and a, and a real visionary and um, a unique, one-of-a-kind figure who will be deeply missed. So I just want to give Giancarlo another shout on the program. Uh, I've spent the past few days thinking about him and his family a lot. I send everybody who loved him my heartfelt condolences. Gina Frangello is the guest. Her new memoir, Blow Your House Down, is out there now from Counterpoint Press. You got to read this book. Just trust me. So here we go. Let's do it. Are you ready? This is my conversation with Gina Frangello, and her memoir, once again, is called Blow Your House Down. You know that some of the parts of the of 
Blow Your House Down were actually originally self-contained essays. But the later parts were something that I was originally writing um, privately to myself under the name of By the Time You Read This, I'll Be Dead. And, and um, you know, I, I, I'm not dead, so obviously that seems quite melodramatic now in retrospect. But, um, you know, there was a point when I was first diagnosed with breast cancer where I had been told it turns out erroneously but there you know there are all these layers of people you have to go through when you're about to get treatment for cancer and for a while I'd been told that I had um, this p53 marker and it was this kind of dangerous thing where it was really adversely linked to survival rates, even if you were in early stages. And I, I kept reading about it, even though they said, don't go on the internet. And so I had this kind of, you know, th I didn't think I was, you know, I was going to die imminently or anything. I only had stage one. But, um, but I, after reading a lot of that research, I was like, I think I've, you know, maybe a few years left and then I'll get sick again. And that'll be that. And, um, so there was an urgency to the stuff that I was writing in private. And of course it all did get, you know, revised, edited, worked on with Dan, et cetera, once it got into the regular book. But, um, but there was that sense initially, definitely to some of the material. Well, okay. And, uh, well, I'm glad my, my sense of things is semi-accurate. Uh, and I should say too, that, you know, because you publish some of this stuff on the nervous breakdown, at least in some form, mm -hmm. and because I, you know, we've known each other a while, I recognize certain things in the book, either because sure. we talked about them. Like, I remember the trip to Africa, you know, like, oh, I, right. I remember just talking with you about that or something. Mm -hmm. And then um, I remember reading some of this stuff. But it's a credit to you and it's a credit to Dan that this book feels like entirely its own thing. It doesn't feel like a collection of essays. It feels like right. one story, um, and it's really unified and beautiful. So you guys did a lot of work on it, I, I would imagine. We did. Um, the version that Dan originally saw and bought um, was much more of an essay collection. It was nonlinear and kind of all over the place in terms of, like, you didn't always know where you were in time. They were all self-contained essays. And, um, you know, he said there's so much happening over the period of time of the book. We don't need to make it harder for people by making it nonlinear. And in the sense that I started to make it linear. So I rearranged things. And then I immediately saw the minute things were rearranged, that there were all these repetitions that some of the essays, like for example, about my father, my father and my mother um, and caregiving them were treading the same ground. And so I started just throwing things out and then I, was replacing them with new things. And so it, it turned into much more of, of, you know, one story arc, so to speak, than, than the original version had been. Dan was amazing because, um, I went to Ragdale and in two weeks kind of just rewrote the whole thing in a fever. And then I was just like, if, if Dan sees this and is like, oh, God, no, I don't know what I'll do. And instead he was like, yes, OK, we're going in the right direction now. Oh, good. Yeah. OK. So for people listening who haven't had a chance to read, um, let's try to give like the big uh, pieces, like the big architectural pieces of this book. Um, this is a memoir about an extramarital affair. 
Uh, it's about falling in love. It's about um, caregiving to parents who are in advanced age and in poor health. It is about enduring breast cancer, um, finding out that you yourself are sick. It is about being a mother amid all of this. Um, it's about losing your best friend to cancer. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, honestly, Gina, like, first of all, it's like, what a whole hell of a lot you've been through. What a motherfucker life can be. Like, just <laughs> life just does a number on all of us. But it does a bigger number on some people uh, than it does on others for reasons that I will never understand. Secondly... Uh, as I was reading this, I felt kind of like a negligent friend. Like I was like, God, I should have been in better communication with her. Uh, and then I thought about my own shit, like, you know, my son's diagnosis. And, mm-hmm. you know, we were kind of going through the ringer together in different ways at the same time. So these things overlapped. But I'm sorry I wasn't in better communication with you as you were going through all this. Well, I feel the same way. I'm sorry I wasn't in better communication with you. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was um, it was just one of those periods. And I think that the same was true for you where just kind of like life stops for nothing. You know, one thing happens and you're like, oh, this is a thing that demands all my attention. And then another thing happens and then another thing happens and another thing happens. And it's like, you know, it just, I I read a book called full catastrophe living back when I was um, studying to be a a therapist way back in another life in the early nineties. And that's what it, that's what it felt like. It was just sort of like, one thing after another just kind of coming my way and and the realization that sort of you know it it doesn't stop you don't get to build a bubble around one particular catalyst event you have to juggle them all at the same time yeah yeah i'll say and i guess too like i have questions about the actual writing of this we touched upon it a minute ago with regard to the sense of abandon that you felt because of your illness and because of this uncertainty around how much time you have left. Like if anything's going to catalyze somebody to write a book and to just go for it, I would imagine like the specter of one's own demise uh, would do the trick. Uh, At the same time, you are going over in such um, elegant detail and with such searing honesty, such painful personal stuff. And I know this, I just, you know, I wrote a book not too long ago that deals with my shit and um, mm-hmm. it was like passing a kidney stone or something, <laughs> like <laughs> pick your, pick your metaphor, you know, or whatever. But uh, I, I guess like, can you talk about the actual composition of this book? Like, was it as excru- as excruciating to write as I imagine, or did the illness like make it somehow freeing. Do you know what I'm saying? Cause it, it also can read sort of like you just like were letting it go, you know, and it was uh, liberating. So, I mean, it's interesting because we, you know, we carry our former experiences with us everywhere. And so you mentioned, you know, my friend Kathy um, who had died of cancer in, in 2011 and, um, she was diagnosed. I mean, it was a completely different situation. And, and I've been very fortunate. I'm five years cancer free now. Um, but she was diagnosed basically in August and was dead by December. And so after that, and I think also, you know, with my father having just died two months before my diagnosis, I think I had, um, 
you know, and I was going through a divorce and just things were really difficult in life in general at that time. And so there was just this sense of like, oh, it's all falling down. So of course, you know, with my diagnosis, like, oh, obviously the worst will happen is what I'm thinking at that time, you know, and, and I actually, I feel, um, I don't want to say I feel silly about it because um, obviously having cancer is, is a major experience. But of course, you know, since that time, I've met and spoken to so many people, so many women who have had breast cancer, and I'm much more informed than I was at that time. But at that time, my mind was immediately going to like, oh, look what happened to Kathy. And oh, there's the scary marker, which later after the pathology report after my surgery, there wasn't even. Um, so, you know, and then other tests, like then they were like, oh, you're, you know, it's all just exactly what you'd want to see. Like, if you're going to have breast cancer, this is the best thing that could possibly happen. And then like a month later, I'm taking the mama print and the Oncotype DX text tests, and they're both coming back much higher risk than they had expected. So it was really a roller coaster. Um, but so essentially that part of the book, the the parts that that pertain to my current life, meaning sort of anything that was happening, you know, from late 2015 onward, there was, I think, just this sense of kind of urgency of like documentation that I was doing on my own in private. Um, and then the trick really, so when you're talking about kind of like craft or is how do you integrate those things into parts of the story that I had originally written about, not only when I wasn't in this sort of like full catastrophe living mode, but when I had been in fact li living a double life. And so some of the pieces that had been on the nervous breakdown um, or other places had really had me as almost like a peripheral narrator in my own life because I wasn't really copying to so many things that were going on in my life at the time. I was sort of in the shadows of the story and so, you know, I'd talk about my parents and, and crazy things that were happening with them, like the one chapter where my father has the, the nosebleed and, um, you know, and the paramedics come from him, for him and he's talking about his how I bought him the sweatpants in the wrong size and he's in his hoarder bedroom um, downstairs from me in my house. So So I had to crack all of those open and essentially say, you know, how did this pertain to my life at the time and really go back and figure out, um, you know, where am I in this piece? And so anything that didn't really filter through, well, where am I and what's happening through, you know, to me sort of got tossed away. I wanted everything to be filtered through the lens of my experience and not to be hiding behind anyone else's sort of eccentricities or stories like my like my parents. Um, so I would not say that it was at all cathartic, which is funny because I've sat in the audience at many, many readings where memoirists are asked, like, was it cathartic writing this? And the answer is always invariably no. It was like, now I feel more fucked up <laughs> than ever because it dredged up all these things. So, I mean, I think the writing of it in a first draft was quite liberating the process of getting it to be 
artful and part of a whole was somewhat excruciating because then when you're you're thinking like it's not just this thing you're writing in secret but it's something you're putting out into the world um you know it's scary writing a memoir is really scary and you feel like you've just pretty much you know shown all the ugliest things of yourself and it's kind of like what Burroway says where in fiction only trouble is interesting and and it's really I guess probably the same in memoir so it's sort of like I'm not in my best light like anywhere in this book you know so so that's um yeah it, it was it was both liberating and horrifying yeah well but kudos to you for having the courage to to put it out there because um, I you know in my experience, and it could be totally different for you, but I sort of feel like probably this is a universal thing. But what's weird about trying to write memoir or autofiction or something that is close to the bone is that you can sit down with the intent to tell the, the, the hard truth, to show the ugly parts, to not look away, you know, from whatever might be discomforting. And even when that is your intent, you are still capable of lying to yourself on the page. Oh, sure, absolutely. <laughs> or at least I am. And I'll, and I'll catch myself in a later edit. I'll be like, wow, I'm just avoiding, or mm -hmm. that's not really the whole truth. Or, And when I was reading your book, I felt like any vestige of that, my sense was that it had been scrubbed away and that you hadn't given yourself uh, any outs. That was the experience as a reader. My question to you as the writer is, like, how do you grade yourself, you know, because we can get self-protective, especially when we're talking about sure. stuff that's so painful and personal and where you haven't necessarily been your best self or whatever. Like, do, do you feel like you were properly uh, hard on yourself or that you got the truth that you wanted to get? So, and that's, a, it's a great question and it's so complex. It's so complex because, you know, I think that, you know, I was suffering from a lot of guilt about various things in, in the writing of the book, but I also feel like you have to strike a balance. Like you can't sit there and basically self-flagellate in a memoir relentlessly um, any more than you can just sit there and kind of like, you know, pompously congratulate yourself or portray yourself as, you know, just some inspirational heroine, like that you have to try to strike some place of rationality where, where you can look at yourself on the page and feel like I'm not trying to convince anyone of how shitty I was. And I'm not trying to convince anyone of how good I was. Like, I'm just trying to write my perceptions and, and so I don't know whether, you know, whether anyone could ever strike the right balance because the story shifts depending, first of all, on when you're writing it. And it also shifts depending on like whose lens you're in, you know, so of course this is all my lens, but, um, but I do feel like it was important to me. It's important to me as a writer to be willing to be definitely like harder on yourself than on anyone else on the page. I feel like that's kind of a, a cardinal rule of, of memoir writing. And yet I also feel, you know, as someone with a background in fiction writing and who 
understands that a book is not a diary. You know, it is a curated thing. So you're never you're never going to be able to represent everything. And it's always going to be kind of like the iceberg where 20% is visible and like 80% is underwater. And then you're always going to change the minute you're trying to replicate yourself or replicate the people in your life through language on a, on a screen, you know, or on a page. So I think I had to kind of detach from some of those questions, even though they, they really, dogged me through the writing is that eventually I just had to kind of step back and say, you know, this is both me and not me. I can't get everything about me in here. I can't get, I can't and don't want to get everything about everyone else I'm writing about in here. This is this one thing. And if people do not find me sympathetic. That's completely okay. Um, in fiction, I've often written about protagonists who were not necessarily judged as, you know, super sympathetic. And I had to look at myself with some of the same ruthlessness that I would, a character I would write about in a novel. You know, like if I'm trying to protect that character and make them the beloved character, then I'm not going to like the results. Like my favorite books show people who are really grappling with inner demons and kind of making sometimes really messy and like fucked up choices. And so there I was, like I was doing that. And so I just wanted to show, I just wanted to show sort of how I was feeling and what I was doing with less concern for how the reader was going to perceive me as though I wasn't, me if that makes sense you know trying to separate the me from like oh god everyone's going to you know criticize this character in the book and and take a step back and be like that's okay Mm, yeah i mean you have to get to some level of detachment i think um both in order to write it and in order to send it out into the world and i guess that's kind of like a, a a separate but uh, related question is like, how does it feel to be sending this book out into the world, which, you know, bears so many secrets and difficult revelations. And, you know, it's just, it's such, it's a, it's a lot of exposure. And I have to imagine, like you talked about catharsis and how, you know, that can kind of be misleading. I get that. I don't necessarily think there's some magical elixir that you're going to find in the writing of a book, but I do think there's a level of catharsis from a creative standpoint Mm -hmm. in the sense that when you have something really hard and painful and monumental or some collection of things, (laughs) you know, some, some like, you know, cornucopia of uh, suffering or whatever that you're, you're sort of faced with. And that's kind of monolithic in your life. My experience of it was that there was no choice. And it was kind of annoying. Like you'd sort of rather be writing just about anything. Uh, like, please let me write about a, a fucking unicorn. You know, I'd give anything to just like write write a fun romp. You know, uh, but you sit down at the keyboard and it's like, really? Like, am I really going to write about anything but this? Uh, and right? I mean, well, it's. I, I was just going to say, it's kind of. It's really interesting to be doing an interview with another writer because. Yes, just yes to everything you said. Um, I did not want to write this book um, in the beginning. 
I wanted to write fiction, which is what I have tended to do in long form books. You know, I mean, I've written a lot of personal essays since, you know, around 2000, 2001, but they were always short form. Um, I had always felt like, you know, well, maybe someday I'll write an essay collection, but it was always on the back burner. And I had like three novels in my head. I usually have several novels in my head at the same time. And I could not write fiction during this period. I just, I I couldn't. Um, I think I was just pulled so thin in so many different directions of kind of various crises, some of my own making, some of fate, you know, and, um, and I, I couldn't enter that imaginative space. So it was like writing through a firewall, you know, to, to just try to get to the other side of it where I could write the things that I imagined I was supposed to be writing, you know, my next novel, et cetera, a story collection. And once I had written it, um, you know, it was a process of kind of realizing that like once I had written it, I was actually going to to publish it, um, you know, of various people reading it, my writing group reading it, um, having read it uh, from it at a reading series, like people starting to encourage me, like you, you should really pursue this. Um, and so it, it's weird. Um, it does feel weird for it to be going out into the world. And even just a few months ago, I would have said like, I pretty much just want to throw up all the time. Like I, you know, I, I'm, I'm like, Oh God. But, um, but I've started to get responses back from from women who are reading the book. And so I feel like my reasons for publishing it do ultimately outweigh my trepidations um, based on kind of the things that I'm hearing from other women who are reading it, which is why I published it. Because when I was going through a lot of these things, I felt like, OK, I can read a book on cancer. Or I can read a book on divorce or I can read, you know, a book on grief um, or I can read a book on infidelity. But it was like and a lot of these were sort of more self-help. Or I could read a memoir about like a woman who who makes a lot of messes. But most of those were about much younger women. You know, there's a, a lot of memoir out there about women who are, you know, having like tumultuous 20s and so forth um but I was in my mid to late 40s when all of this stuff started going down so I I ended up feeling like when I was going through all of this I I didn't have a book that was really speaking to my experiences I had various sort of disparate I can dip into this experience I can dip into that experience and I wanted to write about just the way middle age I think you know you're in that sandwich generation you've got parents and kids at the same time caregiving you know unfortunately a lot of marriages tend to fall apart in middle age Um, you know it's almost kind of a cliche the empty nester divorce mine was a few years you know preceding that but um but all of these different things kind of happening at once and I really felt like there are a lot of women out there who don't feel like they can write about these things, even even things that aren't their fault at all, like having cancer or having a bilateral mastectomy, like where it feels too personal or too vulnerable or, or being afraid of being looked at differently. And I just wanted I wanted those readers to have something that could speak to their experiences. So I just 
um yeah i mean i just decided let's go <laughs> let's well, just do it it's an enormously affecting book even if you know you don't have to be um somebody who's been through divorce or who has uh, been diagnosed with cancer i mean i am neither of those um and i was completely uh, bowled over by this book and you know one of the things that occurs to me about it and about the experiences that you've been through uh, in particular with the dissolution of your marriage is the way in which you like like so painstakingly document the ways in which you were revealed to yourself <laughs> um, the question i have for you is as a writer or as like a writerly sort of person i think we tend to I mean, there are so many different ways in which we have a low opinion of ourselves. <laughs> like there's so many things writers aren't good at, but what we're, what we're typically good at is people and our insides. Mm -hmm. um, you know, like having like a good intuition, being a good read of a person, mm -hmm. not pulling punches with ourselves, sort of like, you know, like you have a good bullshit detector. Right, right. And yet there are so many occasions where you, in life i think we get humbled um absolutely maybe especially when we're feeling great about our bullshit detectors or something you know if if, if we start to get too cocky that might be a sign <laughs> um <laughs> but i guess just like that experience like at, both as a human being like um, a wife and a mother and a woman but also as a creative person mm -hmm. to be to become aware of the fact that like wow like i can really be blind to so much that's happening within me and right in front of me oh yeah like there's a deep lesson in there you know i think it's like like wow we're just we're, we're all wrong a lot <laughs> oh god yeah more than I mean... we more than we wish we were you know but it's just uh i don't know you paint it beautifully uh the way that that happens in you know in your life but i think in in life generally thank you i mean i i think um you know, one of the things for me was not just sort of, okay, I'm going to dive deep into like a lot of things that I did that, you know, you wouldn't necessarily recommend trying at home, um, but also what those things meant in the larger culture. And for me, that was a big window in for this book. So I started thinking about you know, I've done a lot of editing of nonfiction. I mean, I, I was basically editing mostly nonfiction in my three years at the Rumpus, and I'm creative nonfiction editor at the LA Review of Books now. And so I started thinking about like, well, what makes pieces work for me? What, why have my favorite memoirs been my favorite memoirs? Why are my favorite essays my favorite essays? And I really started to realize that kind of no matter how dramatic a person's individual life may be, because um, a lot of people go through periods of intense drama, if the lens is only, you know, here's what happened to me and it's dramatic and therefore it's relevant for you to read about, I don't, I don't tend to be as compelled by that as if connections are being made to the larger culture and to kind of our larger internalized narrative. So for me, this was really kind of a, a, it was really a deep dive of exploration to sort of 
start to understand why some of the things that have compelled me um, as an academic, as a scholar, as a fiction writer, like, why have they compelled me? And to start seeing, you know, aspects of, of feminist theory that I was fascinated by, aspects of, like, um, critiques of the medical industrial complex, the way that women are treated in the culture in very, you know, in various different institutional ways. All of those things are in a way ultimately more interesting to me than this happened to me. But I had to do the this happened to me so that I could show, you know, those things through the life of one woman, if that makes sense. And, you know, I was the only person whose life I could know that intimately. So I I went as deep as I could into my own life as, as much as I felt, you know, was appropriate to do. And then I tried to, you know, really let myself go with making those making those connections and associations in my mind. And it was sort of like falling backwards through everything that has ever been a central obsession for me and, and realizing, you know, that I can kind of trace those things back. And now I see how they connect in my, in my life. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, I mean, I think you have to, you have to like look to external or like third party sources to make sense of yourself. You know, I found myself doing that certainly in um, my own work, like of a similar sort of genre where uh, the answers aren't going to be self-generated. <laughs> right. I mean, right. maybe I'm saying, I'm stating the obvious, but it's like, man, you really do. I need help. Like I need, like, where are the experts? Like call in the experts. Let me figure this out with some, you know, piece this together with some help from people who are smarter than I am and maybe who have distance or whatever. And um, books can be, great solace in that way. I imagine, I mean, this has always been the case uh, for you and I, but I, I imagine especially so as you were going through all this. You know, yes. And um, I mean, yes, obviously, literature is always a solace to me. Um, I was also reading a lot of a lot of theory. Um, I'm back in a PhD program. So after 20 years of, of being away, and one of my original concentrations had been um, feminist theory, which I updated to gender theory um, now. And I just did my exams like in, in March last year. But, um, but also I had been a therapist, you know, for women who had been abused as children or in their marriages. And I had started in that field at around the age of 22 or 23. And I had this sort of naive sense then of wanting to give back because I had grown up in a neighborhood that, you know, had a lot of violence and misogyny in it. And I had this kind of inflated sense of myself that I was somehow untouched and that I could just give back and I could be in a position where I had something to offer other people as a therapist without having really dealt with a lot of my own shit. And so, um, I think this was in a way, like I said, the falling backwards into all of those things and, and kind of figuring out like, why am I interested in this? Like, why does this obsess me? And realizing that there was just so much unresolved stuff from my, from my youth really that, um, 
that I hadn't really delved into much in in either my fiction or my nonfiction. I mean, I had occasionally, um, but but not in the depth that I that I do here. Well, it's interesting because, you know, the way that you describe it in the book is that or the way that it came off to me is that, you know, you were kind of insulated uh, in the, in your childhood and in the neighborhood and the place that you grew up in, in, in kind of a rougher neighborhood in Chicago um, by the fact that you had two loving parents. You had a yes. gentle father, like not perfect people, yes. not and you know, not a Ward and June Cleaver relationship or whatever. <laughs> um, but they both gave a shit and they were both there. Oh yeah. I mean, my parents, you know, my parents are, were eccentric as hell and, and their eccentricities are particularly my father's are, are all over the book. My father struggled with mental health issues his entire life. Um, but, but yes, I mean, I think this, this dive into this material in a way, even though I don't come out, you know, smelling at all like a rose, I think why I was even able to, I don't want to say survive intact, because I, I think, you know, we have no choice but to survive the things that are thrown at us. So, you know, so I resist the idea that, um, you know, somehow getting through something is like heroic or brave. Like, I mean, people have to get through, you know, genocides and so forth and wars and, you know, starvation. And I mean, you know, you have to live the life that you're in. But I do think that I have a core sense of myself that was given to me by my parents, even when I'm messing up. Like, there's a moment in the book where, you know, um, somebody close to me commits suicide. And I feel kind of on the verge of despair um, at that time. I've just recently gotten the breast cancer diagnosis. Um, you know, the divorce is not going well. My relationship with my now husband is not going ideally at that time. And like, you know, I feel like a failure as a mother and all of these things. And I'm kind of on the edge of despair. And I have to find it in myself to believe that I am worthy of not just going under you know, under that wave, like of just being like, okay, I'm now a piece of shit. And that's just it. I'm not worth anything. And I think, you know, my parents love is, is what allowed me to find that to find somehow the belief that you, you know, you not only can, but you're in a sense doing a service by coming back from a dark time, including your own darker actions. And that, you know, if you stay stuck there, you're not only harming yourself, you're kind of harming everyone around you. And my parents really loved me very deeply unconditionally. And, um, you know, they were always in my corner. They were always kind of my biggest fans. And I don't think that, I realized when I was younger how obscenely lucky that made me like becoming an adult and then also becoming a parent um, and sort of knowing more about the world has made me realize how kind of uniquely blessed I was with with my parents and with our sort of little trio, you know, as an only child. And, um, you know, they 
they kept me going even when it wasn't them explicitly keeping me going. Like my mom was already her, her intellect had started to, to decline already by the time that I was facing some of these things. She wasn't really her former self and my father had already passed away, but just this sense of like who they had believed me to be made me feel like there is something, there is something in me that is worthy. And even though I'm feeling like I just want to be swallowed under, I have to find that thing and I have to keep going. Yeah. I mean, you know, you said it beautifully. And I think like as a parent, somehow that's encouraging to me because you're like always so terrified. Like, I don't want to fuck this up. You know, <laughs> like every parent goes through this. I just want to, you know, once mm -hmm. you have a child, it's like, well, okay, now I've got this job. It's a huge responsibility. I think if you're a person who's like semi got their shit together, you, you don't want to fuck it up. And, you know, then you proceed to fuck it up inevitably. Yes. <laughs> you know? yes. And so you, you can sit around bludgeoning yourself for all of your failures. And I've certainly been there, but um, in some way it's like reassuring to think like, you know, you don't have to be perfect, but if you show up for your kids with a full heart and you try your very best to kind of be there for them, mm -hmm. um, even amid the trials and tribulations of life, even amid um, personal failings or struggles or whatever, like that alone gives them an, an advantage that so many people don't have, you know, like yeah. it's, you know, there are plenty of people who come from families where the parents have very little interest in them, you know? Yes. And, I'm reading yes. a book. I'm actually reading a novel. It's like a heartbreaking novel right now about that very thing. And it's just like, oh my God, like that's a weight to live under when like your own mother isn't really interested in you or, you know, flies the coop when you're two or something, you know, like, yeah. That. So I don't know. I, I just, I feel that. And I think like, um, your parents are such like winning characters in the book if i can put it that way like your dad is they are your dad is so fucking funny i, mean, I remember he was so hilarious <laughs> yeah yeah i mean i remember reading about them on the nervous breakdown years and years ago and just being like wow you know like this is a guy who <laughs> thought he was dead at 35 and who proceeded who proceeded to live with all sorts of you know mental illness and then also physical ailments until Tons he was what 92 93 93 and and what's not even in the book is like so his mother who had come over from Italy you know she also thought she was on the perpetual verge of death um she used to call my father in from outside when he was playing when he was maybe 10 years old and she'd be like oh johnny i'm gonna die i want to say goodbye you know and and my father would be like oh my god you know and so you know he he had grown up that way he had grown up with a mother who thought like every day was her last day um and you know she obviously was suffering from from really profound PTSD. She lost two children in the flu epidemic. Oh, and of, then, of 1918. Yes, and my father was born in 1921 and named after one of his dead brothers. And um and so, you know, so she was living with this trauma in a country where she didn't speak the language, um, you know, in an environment where basically no women knew how to drive or worked outside the home. And so she was living just this insular life in her pain. And um, she lived upstairs for me when I was growing up. And near the end of her life, she basically 
return to Italy and her youth in her mind. You know, I would go visit her in her assisted living facility with my parents. We used to go every week after she could no longer take care of herself. She was leaving the oven on and things like that. She was putting herself in danger. And, um, and, you know, we would go and visit her and she would just sing songs in Italian and clap and, you know, I dance and so forth. And we all just kind of lived her girlhood with her in Italy because I think her real life had just become too painful. But by that point, only two of her sons, only two of her seven sons were alive. Oh. And, you know, so, so yeah. And then my, you know, I mean, things that are in the book, like my father, my father, who was literally just one of the funniest people I, I will ever know. Um, and, often on purpose, sometimes not on purpose, but he also had an amazing sense of humor. He had a very subversive, sly, cynical wit. Um, he could also be really goofy. You know, he would show up at my cousin's house, like, you know, wearing one of my mom's wigs and like some wild 70s sunglasses, like, and do what he used to call the rubber legs dance on the porch. <laughs> you know, So he was, he was, you know, he was a very funny guy, but, um, but my parents also had a lot of regret in their life. Like my father never graduated from eighth grade. He had, you know, he dropped out to take a job at a factory and help support his family. And my mother had been given a suitcase by her parents for her high school graduation. So basically like hit the hit the road and wasn't able to go to college. Her stepfather said, you know, she'll only get married anyway. It's pointless for a girl. And, you know, so they both lived um both happy lives. I mean, we were a very happy family, but also lives full of profound regret of roads not taken. And I think like when I was at my lowest, kind of remembering the fact that my parents may have had a lot of grief and, and issues in their lives, even with each other. I mean, they had an, an asexual marriage for pretty much my entire life. Um, but they were always still able to be present for me and to show me love. And I I guess I kind of was able at least to, to believe that that was possible because they had done it. So that you don't have to be happy in every moment or in a good mood in every moment to show your kids love. You don't have to always love yourself in every moment to show your kids love. And so that was what really guided me and still does. I mean, you know, because they were just very loving no matter what happened and they went through a lot. One of the um, kind of smaller side stories that you tell in the book related to your childhood is really touching. And it's the story, and I'm going to, forgive me if I'm messing up the name. Is it Angie? Yes. Well, Angie's a composite character anyway. Um, oh, okay. Okay. So, which I've talked about in a couple of interviews and there's a, you know, a disclaimer at the beginning of the book that, that mentions that some people are composite characters. So she's a, a sort of a, you know, a conglomeration of, of a few girls I was very close to in my youth. Um, and sort of to protect each's privacy, I, I merged them into one person. But yeah, so so I, I don't know what you were just going to ask about her, but yes, carry on. Well, Angie's kind of, you know, the way that she's depicted in the book is this you know, young, um, beautiful, smart, fun, um, 
young girl that you sort of idolized in a way. She was kind of like yeah. a bad girl too, and a tomboy. And yeah. you know, I, I think I have that right. But uh, the way that you describe that relationship, and the way that the relationship kind of culminates with respect to your parents and to res- with respect to the the family situation that you were in, which is set against the backdrop of this tough neighborhood and all that that entailed, like the abuse, the misogyny, the crime, the danger that I think as a kid, you know, you just sort of are either blind to it or you just kind of, that's just, that's the water that you're swimming in, you know, when you're a kid. But I think it's, it, it strikes me as like really poignant that, you know, when you got to a certain age, you got to a point with this Angie character or with various friends of yours where they expressed their envy of you, even though you had been envying them all this time because of the, the secure bubble that your parents kind of provided you amid all of this. But what it also brings to mind, and I have some experience with this because I grew up with like a warden June Cleaver kind of Midwestern (laughs) upbringing with parents who, you know, were just the best and nice Wisconsin boy. (laughs) Yeah. Nice Wisconsin boy. But like with my parents are from Louisiana, it's some mixture of like the Cajun South and the, you know, the Wisconsin and Indiana. And, uh, so I feel very fortunate in that way, but I was also I was also witness to, in retrospect, like quite a lot, which I guess maybe all of us are. I don't know. I, sometimes I think maybe I saw a little bit more than even my sisters, you know, for whatever mm-hmm. reasons, you know, like unexpected deaths, um, abuse, mm-hmm. um, just like weird stuff. And the point that I want to get to is the way that other people's trauma um <laughs> it can get us too. And I think I can feel some guilt around that because it's like, well, Hey, it didn't happen to me. This is not my story or this is, you know, it was way worse for them. What do I have to complain about? But especially I think if you're like a sensitive person and you're, you're kind of an empath and, you know, I saw a buddy of mine like lose his dad and his brother within five years in tragic circumstances. Yeah. Like when you're like 12 years old, you know, that, that hits you. Like I'm still, I'm still with, that's still with me, you know, like it never leaves you. Absolutely. I mean, I think, so it was interesting. I was an avid reader from a very, very young age. I used to go to the public library with my mother at least once a week. So I was always tearing through books. And I think between that and, and a bit of television, I wasn't actually a big TV watcher as a, as a kid, but my parents watched certain shows. Like I had a glimpse that there was another kind of life other than the one that I was living. And my father really disagreed with that. It would say, you know, oh, honey, like, what are you kidding? Like, it's the same everywhere. You know, what do you what do you think you're going to get? And um, and the interesting thing is, is that we both turned out, I think, to be right. So kind of going back to Angie. So, yeah, I mean, I had a lot of survivor guilt for a very long time for getting out of my neighborhood when various other girls I had been close to did not get out um, or even lost their lives, um, you know, or went through extremely difficult, really messed up stuff before they got out. And, And I felt like, well, you know, why did it get to be as easy for me as just scoring well on some tests and getting into a different high school and getting on a path to college and, you know, 
having left them behind, you know, particularly particularly one of them where I, I felt in a sense that it had been my obligation to stay in order to be with her and, and protect her. And, you know, having to kind of let go of that, I also, you know, I also had to revisit how intensely envious of some of these girls I had been when I was young because they actually did seem to fit into the environment. They seemed to have more status or or more comfort in the environment or to be more desired or more popular. And yet at the end, you know, I was able to see, I mean, you know, a few of them told me explicitly, as is shown in the in the book, that all that time that I had been sort of like, what's wrong with me? Why don't I fit in here? Why, you know, why do I feel like an alien? Um, which I often attributed to the fact that my mother wasn't Italian and my parents were older. My mother hadn't grown up there, but was much deeper than that, you know, and and to realize that all that time that I had been kind of beating myself up for like, why can't I be happy in this place that my father thinks is awesome and that these other friends of mine seem to be shining in. Then to realize that after I left, many of them were, had always idolized my parents, had had wished that my father was their father, had, you know, had wished that they could get out and go to the high schools or the colleges that I went to. And, um, and that it was going in both directions. And so that was, you know, that was really informative to me. And, you know, those, those girls, and I think a lot of the girls that I worked with when I was a therapist who had come from, you know, backgrounds, honestly, that made my old neighborhood look, look like Warden and June Cleaver compared to what some of my old clients had lived through, you know, just all of that. I felt like I was always supposed to be totally together because I was the one who had gotten out. I was the one who had, you know, I'd gotten grants and scholarships and, you know, the encouragement of teachers and my mother always being like the wind at my back, being like, you can do anything. And, and having to kind of go back and excavate, you know, what that had been like at the time when I was living there. And I knew that this wasn't the place for me, but I was also idolizing this idea of getting out as though once I entered a different sphere, like presto, misogyny would disappear. Presto, <laughs> like, you know, like, like pain, internal pain would, would disappear. Like, you know, I'd be like the, the sky would part and I would be completely at peace. And, and none of those things of course happened. I mean, the world is complex no matter what corner of it you occupy. Now, obviously, it can be better or worse, you know, but um, but realizing especially, I think, that getting out didn't mean some kind of utopia where, where either my baggage or the cultural baggage of, of, of sexism, you know, classism, all of these things would suddenly evaporate. Yeah, I mean, because you... You know, as I was reading the book, um, you know, you're describing your life like you lived um, in your in your first marriage, uh, like a very bougie life. I mean, com especially compared to um, the, the you know, the way that you were raised in the neighborhood that you grew up in. 
So oh, not sure. only did you get out in the sense that you had, you know, educational opportunities and travel opportunities as a young person, but then you wound up marrying someone who did really well and mm-hmm. you kind of lived in, um, what is it? I guess an upper middle class existence. I don't even know yeah, how to categorize, categorize yeah. these things. Definitely. I mean, I, you know, I, I still lead a very bougie life compared to my childhood. I mean, it, it, it isn't exactly the same as it was in my first marriage, but, um, but you know, it, it's, I still kind of wake up every day and look around me and I'm like, I can't believe I'm here. You know, like I can't believe that just even being able to give my kids like so many opportunities that I didn't have, like being in a house that I love, like, you know, having had the educational opportunities that I've had, like having been able to go the places that I've gone, like, you know, it, those sorts of things were just unheard of in, in my old neighborhood. And, and it's really interesting how much we still view the world through that lens of what we thought existed as, as kids. Like I still look at my living room and I'm like, you know, it's just a Chicago two flats, you know, but I'll be like, Oh my God, I can't believe I I live in this house because the house I grew up in was so small. My bedroom was a closet, you know, and, and just, you know, things were so hard for so many people there, you know, it just on a very basic level, so many people were, were single mothers who were struggling. So many people, you know, I mean, just things weren't clean. Things weren't, you know, things were in, in disrepair. Like you'd go to sleep over at a friend's house and it's like you'd turn off the lights and, you know, roaches would crawl over your sleeping bag and so forth. And and just realizing how lucky I have been, you know, just to first with to have my parents and then second of all to kind of you know have this life where so many things have been possible and where you know where it's been possible to to adopt my daughters you know to to be in California right now you know all of all of these things were just not opportunities that you know I saw my parents having very often or that I saw people around me having very often. So I still feel kind of like the luckiest person in the world. No, it's like, I mean, it's like, I don't think you can have that perspective if you don't have exposure to, um, you know, different socioeconomic strata in a really personal way. Um, like I feel in a weird way, grateful for having borne witness to like, for example, my dad's parents, my grandmother had an eighth grade education. They were first generation. Um, my grandfather was a butcher. They essentially lived in a shotgun house. Mm-hmm. Um, just like, you know, like I, they lived off of social security essentially. And like whatever right. my dad and his brother helped them out with, uh, in their later years. So I grew up going there for Christmas, you know, right. right. Like the sofa was like, it had like kind of vinyl on it or something. You mm-hmm. know? I just remember sleeping on it. Like my face would be sticking to it. You it, know, It probably had a cover. You have to have a cover, yeah. Brad. That's a thing in <laughs> Italian culture. I don't have a cover, but like every house had plastic on the furniture. Yes. Like, I remember sleeping my friend Alicia's in the book by name. And I used to go sleep over at her house and I'd be lying on her plastic sofa with the Afghan over me. Right. <laughs> just like sticking to it every time I moved around. And my grandmother, we used to eat, um, 
you know, dinner in the kitchen and my grand, they had this like really like a knockoff copy of the, uh, the last supper painting, the famous last supper painting. Oh God! <laughs> like so Italian Latin, like a big, you know, Virgin Mary statue in the front yard and you know, all that kind of stuff. And what, have we talked about the Italian roots that we have? Like where in Italy are the Frangelos from? So my, my dad's family is, um, from Calabria from a town called Belcito and, um, and yeah, they, my, my grandmother came over when she was about 18 or 19, um, with my father's eldest brother and, um, her husband was already in Chicago. We were actually like in, in my old neighborhood, we were actually quite fortunate, even in that context, like beyond just my parents being loving, but my, my grandfather had actually purchased the house that we lived in when he came over after working. Um, and so we owned property, which was extremely lucky because I, I mean, I had a lot of friends whose, you know, single mothers were not able to make rent, you know, who had kind of like creepy arrangements with landlords, et cetera. I mean, it was, um, you know, definitely. And, and just, I think also, you know, the violence was very casual. Um, we didn't have anything like social workers or counselors in the school. So, you know, like if a kid came to school all bruised up, like no one said anything, no one did anything. And, you know, it's in, in the book that there was, um, you know, there was a, a gang rape in my neighborhood at one point, And it's like, you know, nothing happened, you know, and so I grew up kind of with this idea that, you know, just somehow if I got out, none of those things would ever happen to anyone without like everyone, quote unquote, caring and without justice being served. And of course, that was just the stupidest thought ever, because I mean, you know, we sit there, I mean, we see Christine Ford or something who is like, you know, went to prep school and, you know, came from money and all of this. And, you know, she'll sit there and talk about having been basically raped and, and nobody cares and nothing happens. She just gets death threats. So, so kind of realizing that, yes, there were things I saw in my neighborhood that I might not have seen elsewhere, but also that, yes, things are often the same, you know, no matter where you go, it was, you know, that was the, the big mind blowing experience of my adulthood. Yeah. You're like, I finally got out. I made it. I'm here. Oh shit. Everything's the same. <laughs> yeah. It's like, you know, <laughs> exactly. Like maybe you get to buy a dress from anthropology, but like, you know, it's all, like, <laughs> like misogyny doesn't go away. Violence doesn't go away, you know? Mm. So I want to ask you, I want to talk to you about love. Uh, oh, let's talk about love. Yeah. <laughs> Because it made, you know, your book really made me think, um, it, you know, it goes into this, you know, about love and relationships. You talk about your parents being together and what I, you know, what struck me anyway, it's, it's a kind of loving relationship and a kind of happy marriage, even though it was asexual. Um, I think they, I, I think they really loved each other. They right? did really love each other. I mean, my, my father, oh, you thank God my father died before my mother because if she had died, he would not have wanted to live another hour. I mean, my father, uh, he kind of worshiped my mother, even though he had, you know, he had a lot of demons. He had sexual dysfunction. Like he, he couldn't be attracted, I think, to someone 
was his wife and the mother of his child. It was that Madonna whore thing, you know, but which, you know, is unfortunately, I think, very common of, of you know, Italian men of his generation. So, you know, he had a lot of, of self-loathing, I think, too, that informed his his sexual identity, so to speak, um, about which I still don't know that much. I only know what my mother told me. But there's no question that they loved each other. They were really kind to each other. I, I really rarely ever heard them raise their voice at each other. There was a tenderness between them. And my mother was incredibly generous towards my father because he had a lot of limitations. Like there's a, a part of the book where my mom's been in a, in an assisted living facility recovering from an accident and pneumonia and surgery on her foot. And like, she keeps trying to come home, but then things are going wrong. She gets put back in and, you know, and my father wouldn't go visit her. My father avoided difficult things. He, he couldn't face a lot of difficult things. So he would just avoid. And my mother just knew him very well and, and didn't judge him for things like that. Um, you know, she, she mourned his death incredibly. And I mean, we both did. Okay. So you have that. So there's one, you know, one example of a love relationship. Um, and then there's the example of you and Rob, um, your current husband, Yes. which is like on the page, it's like, wow, this is just like the love of a life. And like, it's electric. And um, I don't know the way you describe it. It's just like, it's the stuff of movies, you know? Uh, and I guess, like, I'm imagining readers couldn't help but weigh their own relationships against the various relationships that you're, like, married relationships that you're depicting in the book. There's the relationship you had with your first husband, which was loving for a time, but then um, faded, you know? Things came apart. Um, there's your parents, and then there's you and Rob. Am I missing anything? Like, there's so much in this book. I could easily be missing one. But those are the big three. Right, right. Um, yeah, I mean, well, to me, actually, probably the hardest part. I mean, there were a lot of hard parts to write in the book. But but one of the hardest parts was um, trying to really realistically depict some of the the troubles that Rob and I went through after we came out as a couple. I mean, we, you know, we had both been in long marriages. And you know, our, our affair had been, you know, really, yes, wildly intense, the stuff of and beyond movies that I didn't know it could exist in real life. Like all of those, all those things were true. And yet it was also true. A lot of our friends had told us like, you know, an affair is a kind of bubble and life is different when you have to, you know, deal with things on the ground. And we, did go through a period of nearly two years of really having to struggle through that. He went through a really profound depression, um, you know, due to sort of like the guilt of leaving his marriage. He, he has bipolar. So, you know, depression was not the first depression of his life, but um, you know, and, and that certainly, you know, that, that was complicated and my getting cancer was complicated. And the fact that, you know, my kids, knew that I had had an affair. And so, you know, certainly they were not, you know, just jumping up and down to be like, Hey, dad, you know, I mean, it was, <laughs> you know, so all of these real life complications that really just hit us in the face once we, you know, once we were both free, like once everyone knew we were a couple and it taking, you know, about 20 months to actually kind of find our footing 
and re- and start to actually understand how to go forward because in a way at first it seemed like oh maybe this kind of intense passion is is not meant to burn forever and 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 it just you know it burns out like a star and like now will it come back will joy come back will that level of of passion and and excitement and compatibility come back and you know I think at any point in those 20 months either one of us could have easily concluded like no I guess this was just this is you know it was somehow the illicit passion of an affair but we we stuck it through like we had a bond somehow that even when things seemed to just be unraveling and falling apart neither one of us left um and and then it it did come back and got better. Hmm. So you mentioned uh, your kids and, uh, you know, the marriage that you left. And like, like one of the things that hit me most powerfully when I was reading is like how intense it is to live with a secret, mm-hmm. um, yeah. to be living a double life. And, right. you know, I hope I don't, I hope I, I don't spoil too much uh, by describing the way in which you got discovered. It was your it was your daughters who found you out first. Yes, yes. I mean, well, you know, so that was I mean, in, in the singular worst mistake I make in the entire book and in my entire life, my daughters um, did read some texts between me and and you know my then lover, and I, you know. I told them that it was over and then we never spoke of it again for three years. And, you know, they could only speak to how much, you know, how much that impacted them. I mean, you know, I, I'm not of course a mind reader, but obviously I, you know, it impacted them and it impacted my ex-husband, you know, because, three people in the house knew something that he didn't know. And, you know, it was a very toxic time. And, and that, and the complexity of that toxic time existing in tandem with this sort of electric, amazing, you know, period of sort of self-discovery, romantic and sexual awakening, like within the affair, it it sort of really left me not knowing which end was up, you know, because it was life was just sort of like incredible highs and incredible lows, um, incredible self-discovery and incredible self-loathing, like all of these things happening at once. Um, I definitely, you know, I, I want the book to basically, encourage people to explore what they want, you know, and to think about what they want out of their lives, which is what happened to me after my friend Kathy died is kind of realizing like, wow, you can't always just maintain the status quo. Life is short, you know, and making the decision that in the end, I would rather regret things I had done than things I hadn't done. But I also feel like, you know, the fallout was enormous. And so it's like, I think 
it really shows, I mean, I, I believe that, that the book really illustrates and that my life really illustrated that it's like, no, staying in an unhappy marriage isn't a perfect solution. And wow, having a clandestine affair and leaving, you know, leading a double life is a super fucked up solution. And, you know, what is the solution? No matter what you do, there will be repercussions. Um, but you have to figure out that path for yourself. What are you, what are you going to do? And there's no easy answer. Like, no, you know. I mean, the better answer obviously would be like, you know, if you're unhappy, leave, don't lead a double life, you know, or some variation on that, you know? So, but I didn't have the, you know, I didn't have the courage to do that at that time. Well, I, I don't know. It feels very human to me. Like I, like those scenes that you're writing, where your daughters find you out and then you're talking to them about it. And then it's like, it's almost like I can see you like, you know, trying to plug a leak, you know, in a, in a ship, you know, sure. like desperately sure. just trying to like plug the leaks and say, okay, we're going to keep this thing afloat. And they know I've come clean. It's over. It's over. <laughs> like, let's just see right. if we can continue right. to go. And, you know, you tell yourself a lot of lies. I mean, I, I, at that point, you know, truly sincerely had no idea that I was going to end up imploding my marriage in three years. You know, I, I, you know, I didn't see myself leaving my marriage. I mean, there was a point where, you know, Rob was briefly free. Um, I don't know if it's, I don't think it's in the book, like, um, but he had asked for a separation. He was sort of briefly, you know, unattached in the world. And I could have spoken up and come clean too but i i didn't at that point have any concept that i was going to leave my marriage you know i i didn't see it really as an option um you know we were a family and so i just had it in my head that like this is just what i'm what i'm doing and and when i look back i kind of am like what was i thinking but at the time it really made sense yes it was like you know I felt very much like I had to put my finger in a leak. I had to make, I had to make this work. I had to make everything okay somehow, even though things hadn't been okay for a while, you know, and that it was my responsibility to do that, even though I was also a, a real agent and catalyst of, of, you know, the final blows of the relationship. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, and like the scene at the Wisconsin Dells. As a guy who grew up in Wisconsin, I was just like, of course, she comes clean to the Wisconsin Dells. I know. <laughs> of all God. places, a water park. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, uh, you know, you you don't know. You know how when you're writing a character, Brad, in, in fiction, and they start to have a life of their own and just start saying things that you're like, wait, that's not how I meant this character to be. I mean, you know that was me at the Wisconsin Dells. I did not pack up and get in that car, like being like, I, I think I'm going to confess to my affair. Like I just, you know, sometimes your words take on a life of their own. You've, you've hit a wall and, um, yeah, it was a crazy time. Yeah. 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 Um, I, you know, I can't imagine anybody in your family, like your immediate family has read the book except for you, like, you know, your kids, your ex-husband. Is that the case? Like this is such a deeply personal book and it involves them. Like, how do you navigate that? Cause I think they're, you know, 
it's a common question for people writing memoir, but I think especially like a memoir that's, um, that deals with this much familial difficulty and it's just so personal. So can you talk about the decisions you made creatively, um, you know, to kind of go there and to put this out into the world with respect to them? I definitely, my biggest thing was that I wanted to be really clear, um, you know, that I was writing my perceptions. So I, I tried to write as little about my kids as possible. Um, if I hadn't included the fact that they busted me, there was, there was no way that, you know, that I could write honestly about the things that, that came next, um, or about my feelings or about my level of anxiety in those ensuing years. Um, but I tried not to include, you know, really anything about my kids' personal lives, um, in the book and, you know, just to always question whether I was being really clear that everything about everyone else was filtered through my perspective or how I felt and that I'm not speaking for anybody else. Hmm. And, like what I think there's like an idealist in me. I, I get this from my mom. I've talked about this before on the show, but my mom has this thing where like, you know, she watches Hallmark movies before bed. I'm not quite that bad yet, but I'm like getting to the point where I can't watch anything upsetting. And I I just don't like, you know, I, I'm like, it'll be okay. Like there's like that part of me where like, this can be, it'll be fixed. You know, people will come back around and um, sometimes in life though. And I've had this experience personally, you know, where, for maybe reasons that aren't quite as dramatic, you know, a relationship will implode or fade even, you know, maybe nothing really dramatic at all happens. Sure. It, it just sort of withers. But, you know, with respect to your ex with whom you share these children um, and for whom you caused a lot of pain, you know, as you go mm -hmm. into in the book, like, I think it's like one of the hardest things in life is that like sometimes the things that we say and do either on purpose or by accident cause a rupture you know mm -hmm. and sometimes things can't f be fixed do you know what yeah. i'm saying like oh i know what you're saying and yes. you want it to be like well can we find a way and like it's like no like no like shit's yeah. fucked up and it's always going to be fucked up or maybe not like maybe you have a different story to tell but like do you see what i'm getting at like oh it, absolutely it caused that ache in me where that like the 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 my mother part of me was like okay but they're going to find a there's going to be a way to mediate this. And it's like, actually, you know, sometimes the, sometimes the damage is done and you just mm -hmm. got to kind of move forward and live with it. Yeah. I mean, I, I think I, I probably don't have any more to add to that other than to say, yeah, it's really, it's, it's really hard and really true that sometimes you just can't fix a situation. That's it. You know? Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think acceptance is a theme of the book, um, especially, uh, you know, as we get towards the end, you know, or it's like an after effect, you know, we have to accept mortality. We have to accept mm -hmm. that, you know, we're going to have to say goodbye to the people that we love, you know, and maybe not in the order that we wish it would happen either. You right, know, like right. it's one thing to say goodbye to a 93 year old parent. Um, which is very difficult, but at, you know, 93, everyone always right, says, like, course, Hey, yes. you know, you've got a full, a full ride. Um, 
particularly for a guy who thought he was dying since he was 30. So yeah, <laughs> he got a he got a long ride. Yeah, but it's difficult, you know, but we have to accept that. Um you know, love even in um a relationship like you described, you know, yourself having with Rob, like that's not perfect. You no, know, of and there's nothing's perfect. Nothing yeah. is, and it's going to be ups and downs and there's going to be things that are really satisfying, there are going to be things that aren't satisfying. Um, we have to be willing to accept those imperfections. Yeah. We have to be willing to accept that, like, we're going to fuck up as parents. We're not going to deliver in every possible way that we wish we could for our kids. And in some ways, we're going to probably fail them miserably. Got to accept that. <laughs> you know, I, I think about, like, my son's health situation. Nothing can be done now. Got to accept it. You know? Right, right. Uh, I don't know. I, I guess maybe, uh, again, I'm stating the obvious, but it's one of these... Th- things that your book really made me feel, which is like, man, life is a motherfucker. And, uh, you gotta, you gotta, what's the, there's like the Cheryl Strayed line. I love it. It's like acceptance is a small, quiet room. (laughs) You know, you get to a certain point with things and it's just you and by you're by yourself. And you know, it's a great like visual. You're in this small, quiet room and you're like, what can I do? What can I say? This is as it is. And there's nothing Mm -hmm. I could do to change it. And so I've got to accept it or I'm going to drive myself batshit crazy and just do the best I can from here on out. Learn what I can learn. I I mean, right? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, so as you know from the book, like Rob is in recovery and there's, um, you know, there's a lot of discussion about that in the recovery community of basically, you know, you have to live in the present, you have to you know, try to find it in you to forgive yourself and others for things in the past. Like, otherwise, you just stay kind of stuck in a cycle of like, you know, guilt and inability to move, inability to act. And, you know, and I think that it's an interesting thing. I think, I think that self-forgiveness and I think that the ability to love yourself to you know at least a a certain degree um are also really parts of the ability to be kind too that you that that we don't talk about enough like that it can be really difficult to to be kind and do constructive things in the world when you're in a state of constant tumult or, or, you know, self-loathing or anger or shame or any of those things. And so, you know, you can kind of beat your head against the wall of certain outcomes that are not what you would have wanted or not what you would have chosen. But at a, at a certain point, you do have to do your best to let it go or it will inhibit you from being able to be the person that you want to be and, and to be there for other people and kind of, you know, I guess, yeah, it's, it's a small quiet room where you have to make your peace and then you have to leave the room <laughs> and then get back out into life. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a heck of a book. Thank you. I said, I would, you know, people listening should know that I read this book and after I, like almost immediately after I finished, I sent Gina two photos. One was a selfie. <laughs> one was a selfie of me, like in the present day. And then I used one of those apps where I like turned myself into like an 85 year old man. Do you know what I'm talking about? And 
I sent Gina, I was like, this is me when I started your book. And then I sent her the 85-year-old version of me. And I was like, this is me after finishing. <laughs> like, that was definitely me before the book <laughs> and me after the book, too. <laughs> and, you know, last thing I would ask to talk about is, uh, you know, you talk about reinvention uh, of self, uh, or at least you, you know, you allude to it. You were living a certain kind of life in your previous marriage, like this upper middle class, like Chicago family life. And after the divorce, like you just sort of like, like jumped out of the plane, basically, you know, you kind of said, I'm going to remake my life on my own terms. I'm not going to um, request support. So you've had to reinvent yourself in a lot of ways. Like, I, I, it feels like that to me, you know, like it feels like a courageous move. And like, it, I guess I'm wondering well, about it, like having to kind of go back out into the world and, and make your own way, like, you know, at a stage of life when it might be harder to do that than it would be if like you're, you know, you've got um, youth on your side. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, yeah, there were, I mean, there definitely have been components of that. I mean, so, you know, not as radically as happens to some people who get divorced and um and i mean divorce is really traumatic but um you know i was able to stay in our home with the three kids and my father was had passed away by then but with my mother and so there there was that and that's been huge but yes i had to go from essentially having been you know, completely financially supported and able to do, you know, all the the fun literary philanthropic things that I did that, you know, have, have meant an enormous amount to me in my life, like for, you know, helping to launch the fiction section at TNB, my work at the Rumpus, having had my own press, um, working at Other Voices Magazine before then, you know, kind of pursuing adjunct gigs rather than, you know, going on that market and looking for tenure. Like I made a lot of decisions that were within the context of a marriage that I'm no longer in. And so, yeah, it's, um, you know, it, it's been a certain amount of reinvention to have to figure out how to be a primary breadwinner or how to make a living wage, which, you know, is harder and harder in the gig economy. And I had, you know, I'd left my PhD program um, in the late nineties I was I, I got to live overseas um, quite a bit because my ex was working there. And, you know, so I I didn't complete the program and that didn't seem important to me at the time. Like I I felt like I had gotten everything I really wanted out of the program. I'd loved the coursework. I'd loved workshopping. You know, I had read a lot of books on my list, but I didn't go through with prelims, et cetera. And then I found myself, you know, at in my late 40s, like in the middle of kind of cancer treatments, like without a terminal degree in academia. So it has, you know, it's been definitely kind of a challenge to piece together a living, but I'm also really privileged to have had a lot of education and a lot of disparate work experiences, even when they were not financially compensated, um, that I have been able to you know, I have been able to figure out ways to do it, even though they haven't always been conventional. Like I started a business with Emily Rapp Black and, you know, I've had visiting lectureships, different adjunct gigs, um, you know, sold a book, 
still doing options on another book, you know, so, so it, it wasn't easy, but it was easier for me than it is, than it has been for some other people who I've known. And I've been luckier than not in that regard. That's generous. It's still, it's still tough, you know, like it's still tough. Um, but I hear you, you know, like having a home alone and just having a place to live. <laughs> mm-hmm. It's huge. Uh, it's huge. Um, well, oh yeah. And you said options. So this is for one of your novels. Cause I was, I was looking on the back of your book and it's like, you got a blurb from Charlize Theron. That's something yeah. you don't see every day. <laughs> she, she optioned two of my books. She, um, she optioned a life in men, which is still under development. They're still working on that one. Um, and she also optioned every kind of wanting, uh, my, my last novel, that one, didn't go anywhere but um but yeah we're still waiting to see what's going to happen with a life in men okay well congratulations uh on the book it's a fine achievement um you know to put this all down as beautifully as you have after all that you've been through i'm so happy you're well thank um, you you know after all that you've been through and um i think this book is going to connect with a lot of people uh that would be my guess and it's going to be of service to a lot of people because it says a lot of things that people think and feel and go through, but that don't often get languaged. So kudos to you for that. Thank you. One of the things that was really important to me also is that the book be able to contribute to people beyond those who would buy it and read it. Um, so, you know, I decided to donate the ro- the royalties for the book to a place called Deborah's Place in Chicago that helps women who are facing homelessness. Um, it just seemed to me like if I was going to put so much of myself out there, I wanted to try to do some good with it if if possible. Oh, wow. Okay. And then also, what's this business you have with Emily Rat Black? Let's plug it's- that. It's called Circe Consulting, and um, it, we're basically a, a full-service LLC for writers. We um we do online classes. We're doing a retreat in Ketchum, Idaho, in September that had to be postponed from last year because of COVID. Um, we do developmental editing. We do ghostwriting. We do all the things. Um, and so and I adore Emily and and her nonfiction has been incredibly formative and inspirational to me. So, you know, so it's great to get to work with her. We're you know we've been really good friends for a long time and. The women that we've had a chance to work with have blown my mind on the regular. I feel really privileged to be able to kind of share space with them. It's 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 been a great experience. We've been around for about a year now. What's it called again? Circe Consulting. And where can we be? Where can this be found on the internet? Can it? CirceConsulting.net. Okay. Okay. Um, and is it just for women? No, absolutely not. Um, we, I, I have plenty of developmental editing clients who are men. We've only had one man in in one of our in our classes. Um, you better watch out. So... I'm going to show up and catch him with my suitcase. <laughs> so yeah, but a lot of the individual clients are men. All right. Well, listen. It's great to to hear your voice and to see your face and to talk you with you. Let's 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 be in touch uh, more frequently. Totally, totally. I miss you. All right, everybody. There you go. That's Gina Frangello. Her new memoir is called Blow Your House Down. It's available from Counterpoint Press. You can find Gina on the internet at ginafrangello.com. You can follow her on Twitter. Her handle over there is at Gina Frangello. 
It's a great book, Blow Your House Down, available now where books are sold. Go get your copy. Do it. The Other People Podcast is a weekly program offered freely. New episodes drop every Wednesday. Occasionally there is a Sunday episode, but always Wednesdays. You can listen uh, over at Spotify. You can listen on Stitcher. You can listen via Apple Podcasts, wherever you find podcasts. You can find the show online at otherppl.com. You can support the show at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Get a postcard from me. Get happy birthday wishes, a coffee mug. Come on. Patreon.com slash otherpplpod. If you have thoughts on the program, if you have a story to tell me, you can email me at letters at otherppl.com. Letters at otherppl.com. This podcast has its own official app, the Other People with Brad Listy app. It's free. Everything's free. Go get the app. It's available where apps are available. It's a great way to listen. Next week on the program, Shannon McLeod is my guest. She has a new novella out. It is called Whimsy. I had a great, great time talking with her. Shannon McLeod coming up next week. Such sad news about Giancarlo de Trapano. I can't get him out of my head. What a loss. What a rough year this past year has been for pretty much everybody. I did not need this news, you know? I don't think any of us. How could you? Yeah, you know what I mean. We'll miss you, Gian. (laughs) 